Welcome everyone to Grim After Dark, the Frontline Gaming Network's weekly interview show where we hit the high points of the last week in the Frontline Gaming community, talk to the best players and content creators from around the world about the one thing we all love, Warhammer. Obviously, that's why we're here. Uh, tonight, we're joined by aspiring overlord himself, Marshall Peterson. You might remember him as the hero who came fourth on the day, but legally third in our hearts. Uh, with a Necron list that managed to beat Admax, Sisters, Drukari, uh, before falling just short in the semifinals of the Lone Star Open. Um, as we get started here, uh, and before we bring in my wonderful co-host, uh, I want to pull up a, an amazing review uh, because... I checked the comments. I'm a crazy person. Uh, last week, we had a special episode of Taylor, uh, where Taylor came on and talked about uh, Godblight, which is the third book in the Dark Imperium trilogy, the big showdown between Gulliman uh, and Mortarian and kind of the fate of the universe and the balance. And we had this wonderful comment to our video. If producer Val could throw that up there real quick. Yeah, so we have... The recap of this story was so terrible. Missed out vastly important information and revelations. Also, flat incorrect information. Why not just discuss the book and plot point instead of doing a dog turd of a recap? Well, first off, thank you so much for keeping this PG-13. Uh, Tyler, our editor, uh, really appreciates not having to bleep some stuff out. And so that level of caring uh, made me want to kind of pull this up here as well. Um, and then I want to kind of touch on, well, what, what is a Taylor? What, what is Taylor? Are you supposed to leave there uh, with an A to B cliff notes of what the story is? Hopefully. Honestly, maybe hopefully. Um, but most often it's just going to be what he found interesting, what we found interesting, and kind of great parts of the story to the point where you can still go read that book. Because I don't know about you, uh, but I hate going and listening to podcasts and be like, well, I can't listen to this one yet. Because if I do, I can't read this book, or it takes the, the Siege of Terror step away from me. Um, but we are evolving. We are going to change the Taylor format up a little bit. So in a few weeks' time here, uh, we're going to be going with a very special Taylor, uh, which I'm not going to talk about right now. But there's there's apparently promo videos. There's hype stuff. There's, there's stuff Val's been asking me to do for weeks, which is external shots. And it's going to be amazing. So I want to touch on that real quick. Um, however, back to tonight, the important kind of fun thing here. Uh, my co-host is always is formerly one of the top players in Alaska. Now he's figuring out the big leagues of Idaho. Uh, if you watched any of the Charity Hammer coverage, you may remember him as one of the two jerks who played Admech. He's the master of the sensible chuckle, Danny McDivitt. Danny, Charity Hammer was last weekend. You took part in the hardest GT ever. How did you do? Uh, well, I went, uh, one and one. <laughs> Heck yeah. It was, I, I, after a tense game with, uh, Seth, uh, from signals to the, uh, the front line, um, which we've been hyping, especially last week. Um, we, uh, we drew that game and then had to go to a tiebreaker. Um, oh. and then I got to play against, uh, Nick Nanavati. Nick Nanavati, uh, trashed me. So that was pretty, that was pretty dope. It's always good to see somebody like really implement the skills that top level players do. Uh, to win games and so uh, super fun learned a lot had a really good time yeah you were talking about all of like the cool little things that he was doing as well that you were like oh okay uh there, there's kind of yeah. like i haven't had to face that yet nope so cool now i know that that stuff exists <laughs> and i think my favorite thing is like yeah, we're not going to tell you what it is because that way when you play danny on the table he gets to pull it on you too and that was for free you learned that for free it was, I got a really discounted coaching session. 
Um, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, what a great event. Raised a ton of money for charity. That's what's important. Um, had a really good time to boot, which was just uh, really uh, a really, really good time. And uh, so if you haven't checked out any of that footage, I believe there's been a bunch more that's been uploaded. Um, so you can yeah. check that out on uh, YouTube on the various different channels that it was hosted on, whether it was Art of War or uh, Best in Faction. I believe there was a Can Hammer stream as well. So or whichever of those you need to check out. You can check it out on YouTube and Twitch on your very own Frontline Gaming Network, which carried a oh, lot yeah, of the games. Go. Uh, yes. They carried a lot of the games that were big supporters of uh, the, the Charity Hammer event. Uh, after the weekend, $37,000 was raised, uh, which is insane. Um, I think the part that I was most excited about is Grim After Dark. We donate prizes. We want to do things to help the community. So Danny and I put our heads together and we we're like, what can we donate that's going to really scream Warhammer? So we donated a luxury blanket from the Cinemark, Cinemark Movie Theater. That's correct. So literally, it wasn't something that we just picked up randomly while we were out uh, enjoying ourselves. No, um, it was something that we found, we thought about extensively, and then we passed that along to the Charity Hammer viewer as something that really just screamed Warhammer to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then what? another thing that was super, super great is at the end of Charity Hammer, everyone was celebrating making so much money for charity and people put in stretch goals. So they were like, I know a couple of people like, if it reaches $25,000, I'm going to shave off my beard to, to show solidarity for the kids. And there's people who were like, if it reaches $30,000, I'm going to do it. And then there's jerks who were like, if it reaches $50,000, I'll do it. Uh, Danny, what was your stretch goal for going beardless? So uh, I was a jerk. <laughs> but then uh, I was peer pressured at the end. Uh, so if we make $40,000 after the fact, because um, I believe Colin is going to donate that much uh, or he's going to leave donations open. Um, uh, if we hit 40 grand, uh, I will shave off my beard. Um, so you'll see uh, a beardless... Uh, freak, if you will, um, here on uh, on this podcast uh, slash video cast um, in a in a week's time. I do have to get my, some headshots, and I would like my beard for that, uh, it, like next week. But after that, that's totally fine. We'll get we'll get rid of all of it. I'll be a I'll be a, a nice seal that anybody could wallop. And if you reach forty thousand dollars, Danny will take his permanent school IDs that he has to use for years, beardless. And like he was saying, instead of uh, bearded freaks on the show, you see a bearded, beardless freak over there, hopefully. That's right. Fingers crossed. Let's like make, make that money. Uh, tinyurl.com forward slash charity hammer. You can go there. It's still open. Um, check out the footage on the Frontline Gaming Network that we put out there. Uh, some really good stuff. Um, mm -hmm. This week, Kill Team come, came out. And GW... Uh, as amazing as the Q system was, uh, we're going to go right past the hex fire stuff because it hex fired out of there really quickly. Uh, now, Kill Team, they're saying something a little different, right, Danny? Yeah. So part of the announcement that Kill Team was coming out with were when they, uh, they or they made a specific article about the availability of Kill Team, which I thought was really good. It really addressed a point that GW hasn't addressed in quite some time. Um, in that uh, making sure that any releases that they come out with um, in the future, uh, special edition box sets, things like that, there'll be enough printed for everyone, um, which I think is great. It kind of uh, helps to tamp down on the, the FOMO that appears when somebody is, or, or that happens when somebody doesn't really get the box that they really wanted. So pretty excited about that. 
Um, I even looked for negative comments about it, and I found like none because I mean, obviously, this is a good thing. It's all good for everybody. So that's that's really disappointing. There was no negative comments, but the Frontline Gaming Network style guide does say that third party sales at inflated costs are really bad and should not be promoted whatsoever. So good guy, GW, uh, ensuring that on release weekends, you can get the stuff that you want to get. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And then on top of all of that, we got a preview um, of the brand new, all terrible, awful army Codex Black Templars or supplement Black Templars because they're not good enough even for a full book. I can't stand them. Uh, but new Emperor's Champion's coming and he's primerified. Yeah, he looks he looks great. I mean, I like Black Templars, unlike John, uh, who's just a, a heartless uh, sycophant of salt. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's something really appealing about a specific faction that goes out of its way to do the opposite of whatever it's been told to do by the Emperor, the Imperium, the Codex, um, all of that stuff is super cool. And it's then you know, and should be crumpled into a ball and just literally tossed right out. And I know if it's me and I'm Gulliman and I've come back, uh, I came back and kind of was like, okay, I'm going to make the Imperium all better again. And oh, you Black Templars over there, I guess you guys are still cool. Cool, have some Primaris to keep ignoring rules with. Yeah, and they did. <laughs> they did, yeah. And then the chat, Crypt Shadow, quite right. Black Templars are just edgy teenage sons who want to rebel. And that's it. They are the hot topic of Space Marine chapters. Oh, how um, can you even say that when Raven Guard exists? Come on. No, no, no. <laughs> they know what it is. And for Raven Guard, it's not a phase. But for Blank Black Templars, <laughs> it very much is a phase because oh, I see. Okay, so what you're saying then is that like Raven Guard are the scene kids, and then like Black Templars are just the the kids who would who just shop at Hot Topic during the angsty phase of their teenage years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mom wouldn't buy them that new BMW, so they have to really lash out and get a My Chemical Romance CD. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they did, however, produce my favorite meme of the week, uh, which is just a wonderful call on what was standard Imperial Fist Battleware in the 30th uh, millennium, but now is exclusively Black Templar. And if we can have that up on the screen. Yeah, this wonderful thing here. Uh, it's the Wiimote. So yeah, his sword is chained to his hand, and it looks exactly like the Wiimote loading screen, saying, be careful or you're going to hit some stuff down. What, what do you feel sort of about that safety safety uh, bracelet that Black Templars have to wear, Danny? I mean, look, if I'm going to go into combat and I'm afraid I might lose my sword, it's pretty silly not to chain it to your fist. I would say anybody who doesn't is just uh, just not thinking practically. Like, if I need to keep a permit, if I needed to keep a permission slip around my neck as a kid, like, my mom would pin it to my chest. So it only makes sense. <laughs> so so these the guys have Templars, swords pinned to their arms. Yeah. The Black Templars are your Space Marine chapter equivalent of the kid who needed the note pinned to his jacket because he would Correct. forget about it. Absolutely. So as they're getting ready to crusade, like their tech priests are sitting there like pinning their weapons onto them. Like they have a bolter on a chain. Mm -hmm. uh, like they, they have their sword in a chain and be like, okay, don't lose these now. There's going to be like three or four Black Templars, the only ones who survive the crusade who come back. They go, oh, I lost my bolt gun somewhere. Somewhere. Well, They're all and the the, uh, the change grenades uh, proved to be problematic, so they discontinued the use of doing that. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. It's idiot mittens. That's that's all it is. Thank you, KR Quinn. That is absolutely right. Um, Black Templar idiot mittens now in Primaris size uh, for your viewing needs. Uh, but you know what? We've rambled on long enough about uh, how terrible our reviews are and, and how really similarly terrible and, and deservedly so Black Templars are. And we will continue this crusade against Black Templars, ironically, right up until the book comes out because they deserve to not have a book. And I look forward to it going away in 10th edition. Uh, my hatred of Black Templars is that strong. Uh, but let's bring on Marshall Peterson, uh, fresh from his heroics at LSO, uh, being that inspiring overlord that uh, Spiky Bits warned us about. Marshall, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Johnny. How are you? I mean, I'm just loving life right now. Yeah, I got to get my Black Templar rage off my chest. They are awful. Um, and then, yeah, good to have you come on in here. Uh, let's talk about your Black Templar. Oh, Black Templars. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It started not like this. It's um, all Black Templars. It's all Black Templars now. It's just whatever I look at now is a Black Templar. Uh, but your Necrons. You took Necrons to Lone Star Open, uh, Frontline Gaming's first kind of giant event in Texas, uh, uh, an underpowered codex, uh, something that wasn't going to keep up with the meta, especially with your carry, ad mech, and all that other kind of stuff running. You know, you did, you did okay with it. I think I did uh, well. I I did better than I thought I was going to do. Uh, got uh, towards the end, got to play against a lot of top ranked and uh, very, very uh, fun players to play against. So it was a great time, a great weekend. Yeah. Um, so like you start uh, obviously kind of like you, you start with random pairings and then the further you get along, the better the games get uh, or no, the better the games get. Even that's just super rude to your opponents. The harder <laughs> the games get. Um, what was it? What were you feeling kind of as you were progressing up? Like what was the, the difficulty increase round to round? Oh, it was it was definitely exponential. Uh, I mean, just if you looked at it mathematically, it would be double every time. Uh, and it almost, it honestly kind of felt that way, especially since I just never got an easy matchup. Uh, man, it was just, I believe I went uh, just uh, Mechanicus round one, then I played Sisters, Custodes, Dark Eldar, Dark Eldar again. Yeah. It so just wouldn't let up. I, I have I have the list here. I actually did a little bit of prep for this here. So yeah, you went up against Mechanicus round one, which no one ever wants okay. to see on a pairing sheet. We uh, had Sisters round two, Carrie round three. Uh, Custodes round four, Dracari again, Sisters again, White Scars and some Eldar jank. It was it was not an easy win path. Yeah, definitely. It was everything that my uh, list was ready to face, but didn't want to. So you say that your list was ready to face it and you designed this sort of in a certain way. Um, what did you do to kind of make your list ready for the, these meta-breaking kind of like giant uh, big dog codexes? Well, I looked at the armies that people are playing right now, and it seems like they're honestly playing a little bit like a game of chess. It's very much an idea of trading, where everything is not very durable and extremely lethal. And the idea that they're playing with is just, look, I have more things that I can throw out and let die than you do. That's how Jukari wins. And Mechanicus plays a similar game where they say, I can just kill anything that you throw out. And so I basically uh, built a list that was designed around the idea that there would always be a fair enough chance that I'd come out on top on that trading game. And so if you look at the list, it might look really weird. Like, why are there nine Lich Guard, right? Why not just ten? Well, it's partially per points, but it's partially <clears throat> because if you throw an entire squad of Mechanicus at a squad of nine Lich Guard, they actually have a pretty good, pretty good choice of having one of them left. And so I essentially teched into this idea where I played very similar to Close Combat Death Guard, 
but with the mentality that every time that the coin flip lands on my side, I get a full unit back. And that was the main advantage that I tried to push on. Because Necron, sure, they're a pretty low down codex. And if you look at them competitively, it's hard to compare them to other armies. So you really have to focus on what that makes them comparatively better, uh, which is something that only that army can excel at. So what about your list gives you a whole unit back when you go down to like a few models? What are the things that really kind of, uh, that kind of trigger that process? So the things that trigger that process are uh, your res orbs uh, primarily, and of course the Technomancer. Um, with those two combined and active in the same phase, uh, you're basically able to say, okay, if you shoot me with a squad of 20 Skatari and I survive with one Lich Guard, mm -hmm. I'll get two or three back just from the standard reanimation, and then the uh, reanimation orb uh, will then bring back, uh, let's see, there'll be six more, so about three more after that, and then the Technomancer brings back another one after that, and suddenly you have seven out of nine Lich Guard alive again. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the idea the list was built around, uh, as well as the idea that I took a couple more HQs than most people are used to, and I skipped past the Catacomb Command Barge with that same mentality in mind, where I try to have as many coin flips that some land on my side. And one very good coin flip for Necrons is you have obsec characters that can reanimate on a four up. Gross. So if you just need that objective over there, all you have to do is throw a character on, like my Locust Lord, that everybody was wondering, what does the Locust Lord do? It sits on that objective and says, okay, kill me, 50-50 shot that I reanimate, and I hold this objective anyway. And I just let all those coin flips fall through the air, and every single one that landed on heads pushed the game slightly forward in my favor. That's awesome. So was your entire list essentially objective secured? Uh, yeah, it's the dynasty where everything is objective secured except for the Catan, which is a really weird uh, addition, but... No, and speaking of Rikatan, uh, you did use that in really interesting ways. Like a lot of, I know when uh, the Ocho was covering the event, the Camilleri and the, the other commentators were talking about how effectively you used your Satan. Like, how did you use your Satan? Like, how does it differ from how other people use it? And kind of what does that bring you? Yeah, so most of the time when you hear about a Catan, you're thinking of the Nightbringer. It's something that launches forward, kills as much as it can, and then just kind of dies and explodes. Um, I used my Catan more as a Basilisk and an objective deterrent. Um, with Sky of Falling Stars, you're killing an average of five Skatari a turn. And so essentially, he was just this Basilisk to say, look, when these coin flips are falling, Fair enough, my Lich Guard squads, they're not going back up to full strength. They're falling down to 7, then 5, then 3. And what he's good at doing is choosing uh, up to 3 units and saying, okay, you guys are doing the same thing. You might be weakening me down slowly, but you're falling down at the same rate. And you can't hide from it because it's out of line of sight. Uh, it's very consistent. And just saying, okay, yeah. I'm going to bring you down with me so I can keep that average uh, at my level. Because on average, they'll kill everything I have, but it's right at the middle of the bell curve. So half the bell curve is mine. Yeah. So you sound like you did like a lot of math hammer for, for getting this ready. Was that kind of right uh, there? Was this like an Excel spreadsheet before it was ever an army list? Uh, very similar. Yeah. It had a lot to do with that, uh, looking at what units could actually survive. Because Necrons, the only thing that they really have that puts them apart is their reanimation protocols. And everybody's saying, man, reanimation protocols just doesn't work. Blocks of warriors don't survive. Uh, everything just dies. So it's basically just picking whichever unit had a fair chance. Uh, the Catan is one of those things that have a fair chance because you can only wound it so much. So sticking it on objective, so long as the opponent's not jumping on that same objective, you hold it. You're guaranteed it for the turn. Um, that's one of the interesting things that I did with it is... Uh, 
on the mission against, I believe it was the mission against the uh, sp- uh, the White Scars. Yeah. I took a mission secondary that required a unit to do an action and still be alive in my command phase to continue the action. Okay. A Catan can do that action. That's a pretty good target, yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. chances of it going away is pretty low. Absolutely zero if you're playing against White Scars. And so it's something that's guaranteed. I for sure held the point with it. It for sure finished the action. And doing an action with a Catan doesn't hurt it at all because its ability isn't a shooting attack, a psychic ability, or a charge. That's... So just finding those weird interactions and saying, sure, let's roll with it. That's all you got to, that's all you can do with an Ekron Codex. So a lot of the time uh, when people are making lists, they're already going in with sort of specific secondaries in mind. Uh, what were sort of some of the secondaries that you had in mind when you were building that list or kind of what were you building towards with it? Uh, that's actually kind of funny because I like to think that I had a couple, but after my game that I lost uh, at the end against Sean Naden, uh, the head TO walked past me and he's like, Marshall, do you even secondary? And I'm like, I guess not. Uh, my, the secondaries that I scored are actually pretty low. Um, While We Stand, We Fight was a pretty common one that gave about 10 points back. That was the two Lich Guard blobs and the Catan. Uh, uh, Those sometimes retrieve Octarius data was nice because I had Cryptothralls and other things that could teleport around. But it almost seemed like I never really went that far with secondaries. Honestly, the list is more designed to conquer primary. Because when you're a early codex or a codex that doesn't ha- that isn't part of ninth edition yet, you really just got to play that primary mission, and that's the big thing that sets par- Necrons apart is the ability to have all that opsec. So is that something you feel like you max primary like most of the time there? Almost every game, yeah. Yeah, that's why I mean, I guess if like every unit in your army is opsec, uh, that's super helpful, especially if you have a unit in your army that you can't really successfully kill in a turn. Uh, that is that's pretty gnarly as well. So outside of your two losses, uh, the the LVO or LVO LSO, this is going to get real confusing the more events we start to add in here, guys. Um, so you you had a loss to Jukari against Nathan Fennel, and then of course you lost to, to Sean Nate in there. The other games there, what would you say was your absolute like toughest game where you're like, oh no? Ooh, uh, it was actually interesting because almost all of the games were very close. If you look at them, there were very few that were further than maybe 13 to 15 points away from each other. Uh, and that's partially because I focus more on gaining points than I do losing points. However, uh, I don't know. Most of the games kind of fell pretty far in one person's favor quickly because of primary. But I remember I was very stressed during the Custodes game and during the first Dark Eldar game. Uh, during that Dark Eldar game, the first one I played, it was against the Drakari list with two bombers. And they basically oh. blew up, They blew up, I think, half of my troops and both of my HQs turn one. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I was looking at the map and I'm like, well, this kind of sucks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, that one had me uh, pretty worried. And that was a big fight until the end. I think we finished off with uh, maybe 13 seconds on the clock. Uh, on one side uh, so it was a it was just a brutal battle until the end and then the custodies game he played a very interesting style where uh his bikes were taking full advantage of the train rules that the tos had ruled oh yeah and the tos had ruled that you were you would be able to basically hang as much off of a train piece uh as the model can physically do without falling and so we probably oh. spent about 40 minutes of that game just putting <laughs> a bike onto a train piece and watching it fall over until one time it stayed up. And, like, all right. uh, yeah, and by doing so, uh, 
things could be done with the five inch vertical engagement range where it could be sitting on a crate halfway off and then be above a technomancer that was otherwise screened out. And he was just so good at playing with those little technical things that he just kept getting these advantages here and there and it was hard to keep up. But fortunately, I think the matchup was a little bit in my favor. So I was able to get out of that one uh, scathed, but not killed. I got to open this up to Danny here. Danny, hearing this sort of things gives me horrible flashbacks. Does this kind of terrain ruling mean we're all living in a Kev Mackie uh, repulsor up on Ruins World again? Because God, I hope not. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's not the case for a lot of tournaments. That sounds really janky. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't care for that very much myself. But I, I guess the ruling came out of the fact that they didn't have a firm ruling, so they just followed it rules as written. I expect that in most tournaments that won't be the case, but you know, the TO says what the TO says, and you yep. just go with it. Like That's it fun. almost turns that game into like a family guy gag where you're just watching this guy trying to put a model on top of something, like, oh <laughs> Oh. And like, well, it's your clock time. Uh, you know, you, you do what you got to do, but I'll, I'll do my movement afterwards. Um, you talked about so some like specific terrain rules and kind of things that we're having. LSO debuted uh, Frontline's new player place terrain system, which they rolled out after some feedback from um, ACO. Uh, how was that for you? And how did that kind of go into your prep? Did you prep for player place terrain at all? Or did you just sort of, sh- yeah. did you just sort of show up and be like, well, I'm probably not going to die. So we'll reanimate. Well, uh, like you said, with the whole math thing that I did beforehand, where I basically uh, ran my list hypothetically against all the meta stuff, the terrain definitely took a part. And I think the terrain did a really good job at making that top eight as diverse as it was. Uh, Everybody was looking at that top eight and they're like, wow, it's so crazy. Like you have all these different kinds of players, all these different armies. And I think part of it is that the terrain kind of acted as a way for the tournament to debuff really strong armies without saying that's what they were doing. Yeah, because definitely if you have the chance to hide some of your units, that really reduces admag shooting down a bit. It kind of takes away some Dracaria things as well. Yeah, uh, specifically uh, with player place terrain, while the way they had it was really nice, actually, it's not like you could make a fortress. Yeah. Uh, it still made it so that each terrain piece actually mattered, which was really good against admec. Uh, you were able to actually hide more of your army, and it was more of a back and forth game rather than, oh man, this terrain placement is a shooting gallery. And then on the other side, uh, it was very subtle. But if you look at the um, if you look at the list of the terrain traits, everything that was a building had heavy cover, which gives oh. a plus one uh, to combat. That seems which, real good. Exactly, which means that against, for example, witches, which were very common, my lich guards still get a two up save in combat. And so, those two working together basically made the durability of my army a lot more effective because my army did not kill much if you watch the streamed games and you see my destroyers they just sit there and create this little aura bubble of like hey you don't want to come here but that's all they did they didn't really follow through with anything and so it was very much a game of just okay i have this uh these units behind this obscuring if i'm playing a shooting army or inside it if i'm playing a combat army just saying okay look i have a great counter threat and basically wanting to keep that game mm-hmm. and that status of I win by default. If you do nothing, I win. And then just trying to use that and push that to your advantage. So did you like come like uh, across people who like figured that out really early that, okay, I'm going to have to push real hard real soon? Uh, it was interesting to see, actually, because uh, there's a big gap between those who look at their points mm-hmm. and estimate what it's going to be at the end of the game and when they're doing that. Um, when I 
moved further and further into the tournament, you could tell they were counting out the points in their heads, saying, okay, what's yeah. the end score going to be? What kind of changes need to be made? And that made it a lot harder for me because the first, uh, a couple of the first couple of games, there was a, a few opponents that caught on really quick, but they would kind of mm -hmm. look at it at the bottom of turn three, for example, and they'd say, oh man, I'm actually falling behind on points. Like they would score very high, like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. but just a little bit before uh, behind me and then they wouldn't have enough time to catch up. So that was definitely a big thing and one that definitely helps, especially when someone's doing what I'm trying to do, which is just kind of stagnate the game. Uh, is just really kind of keep track of everything. Just like look at your score sheet and be like, what's going to happen if we sit here and do nothing? Oh, and then see I thought who's stag back foot. stagnate your individual games. I thought you meant stagnate the game in general. Like that was your master plan. Like, well, if I can't win the game, then I will just stagnate the entire edition <laughs> for everyone. Oh, uh, no, I, I actually had this game one time that I played against Dark Angels when they were at the height of their terror. And it was just Terminators and Terminators and Terminators. I was like, my army can't do anything against them. And we literally spent the entire game inside our deployment zones. And then about turn four, I was like, okay, I maxed all my points. And he was like, oh, I'm only going to get 95. And I was like, okay. Oh, man. That, that, that story is like literally everything that is wrong with Warhammer right now, where you can have your little Dark Angel parking lot. And then you have like a little Necron parking lot and you're both like hiding in each other's deployment zone or in your deployment zone. And then you're like, okay, I got a hundred. Well, eventually you get to the point where the players are watching each other. And as soon as one realizes that's happening and they're behind, they have to act. So as long as both people are on top of it and figuring out what the end score is likely to be, one of them is always going to be pushed to move forward. <laughs> but then you have those situations where they don't. And you have the unique situation of having finished five rounds uh, and having two hours and 15 minutes left on both of your guys' chess clocks, which is just peak, peak Warhammer. Oh. Yeah, you know, you go out, you buy each other a drink, you just talk about your life story, come back, you know. Yeah, we like games, right? Tur turn three now. Uh, I guess we'll get that started. Um, I want to bring up something you you mentioned the Custodes player that you played against. Um, John Camacho, he also had some Gaunt's Ghosts in there. Uh, which we were like, I think there was a lot of jokes about how you would never see in the competitive setting, uh, like how they just give up assassinate points and they're going to be bad. And you have the um, infinite reusable hand grenades. Uh, but you came across him in like round four, uh, which means he already won three matches. How did you find that list in Gaunt's Ghosts in general? So Gaunt's Ghosts in that list actually played a really funny role. First of all, I would like to point out that my opponent was a very courteous, like, more like moral person who would not use that grenade rule <laughs> i asked him at the beginning i was like okay is gaunt throwing infinite grenades do i need to just oh, make man. this little 14 inch bubble around him he's like no 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 i'm not doing that uh, and you gotta think it. poor john Camacho probably heard that uh six times over the weekend or, or five times over the weekend he's like yeah nope not doing that thank you it's like don't worry about it that's not what i'm doing uh but it was very smart you know like you look at them and they're actually they're durable for their points. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, why is this in his list? And I sat there looking at my secondaries for a minute and I thought to myself, he wants me to take assassinate. And so I looked at him, I said, this is just a trap to take assassinate, isn't it? And he just smiled and nodded his head. He's like, two of my opponents have taken assassinate. It's like he had like five dreadnoughts in his list and all these custodies. And it's like this front line of just brawlers. And then he could just put Gaunt's Ghost at the very back of the table and never lose him. And he's like, yeah, most of my opponents, the majority of his opponents would take Assassinate and then stare in horror as Gaunt's Ghost deployed back line on the field behind all these uh, dreadnoughts. 
How do you feel about like assassinate? Because I know like uh, I mainly play death guard here, but like I always love it when my opponent take assassinate because I'm like, what's well, kind of a trap secondary? Because like you think you're going to get it, but but you're probably not. Um, what's your take on assassinate? Do you think it's like a trap secondary? Because I know you run kind of character heavy with your necrons too. Yeah, uh, Necrons are especially kind of a trap secondary with Assassinate, uh, though my opponents did tend to get about 9 points with them, but which again just plays into the idea of it's a good score, but not quite good enough, which was a good trap secondary for me to play. Um, personally, Assassinate really didn't matter that much, unless if I already lost the game, because if you can target my characters, you already killed my whole army. And so... I, Assassinate for me is kind of this thing where it's like, if one of you is very confident, it's just a way to say, you know what, I might as well get 15 on a secondary. Why not? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, everyone to see me thinks like it's worth the try, but like you see most of the lists that give it up are giving up for like a very specific reason. And it's generally not because they think they're going to give up 15 points a turn. Um, Post uh, Lone Star, uh, we've started to see your list like appear in a lot of places um, in a re really kind of similar way. Um, what is that like, kind of like Excel spreadsheeting yourself to, to like a fourth place list and then seeing it sort of all over the place on BCP? Yeah, uh, it's it's been really interesting to watch, actually. It's really fun for me to follow along with uh, the win-loss ratios that come with it. Um, and just kind of see like, okay, like are people getting what I'm trying to convey with it? Because with the list, it's really hard to see it for what it is. It's a bunch of combat units with a forward deploy. And the first thing people think is, oh man, this is like a lot of other Necron lists that come up with a bunch of wraiths and scarabs, where the whole idea is rush the board with obsec and try to survive with it before your opponent uh, beats you on points. And if you play that with this list, it just does that, but worse. And it's really just to sit back in your deployment zone and just do only what's necessary to put you ahead on that win by default game and so it's uh it's very flattering like i'm i'm pretty new to the scene honestly yeah. like before this uh season i really hadn't shown up much mostly because i wasn't really playing tournaments but no i tried uh, so to find you and it's really rude you didn't do anything like you're like persona non grata and bcp up until like this year pretty much oh yeah pretty much it was uh i joined the year that COVID hit and so I only got half a season there. And essentially, the whole thing is just my older brother and I, we used to play all the time as Tyranids versus my orcs. And for a decade, we just played evolving and adapting against each other. And then I came out and just uh, went to college, started playing other random people. And I was like, man, why, why do I win? <laughs> so <laughs> I tried my hand at tournaments, and it's been super fun. I get a huge kick out of tournament scene, and the, the people I meet are so awesome to play against meet so many cool people so it's it's been a really fun journey kind of jumping into the scene so it's been cool seeing my list being this kind of copy and paste list that you always hear about yeah no absolutely and, and you said you started during covid um so what drew you to necrons during covid so i actually started with a uh i would play my scions that i had and i would play my uh orcs mostly but then when the new uh, necron codex dropped before any of the rules were anything I just saw it and I said, oh man, that Void Dragon looks really cool. <laughs> and that was really it. And then I just bought all the models that came out. The codex dropped and I was like, I can work with this. And I just took it to tournaments to see what happens. And it worked. That's awesome. So where did you sort of start out for Necrons? You, you mentioned that you like kind of loved the Void Dragon. So did you spend like a lot of time trying to build lists around the Void Dragon? Did you take him out or kind of where did you go from there? Uh Two RTTs, I would sometimes bring him out, but uh, the list that I generally started with was a whole lot of Lich Guard around the King, 
because I was like, man, this is so cool, this royal guard playing around the king and just the rerolls to wound. And then people started showing up with dark lances and las cannons, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a really big shift away from that, and I started uh, reevaluating the whole Necron Codex and saying, what can this do better than any other codex? What strategy can I take that wouldn't simply be better using the, a different book? And essentially what I came down to was mortal wounds or durability. And so for the list that I've been bringing are either uh, mortal wounds spam Catans, which are probably going to get less effective as Grey Knights and Thousand Suns drop out, able oh, to yeah. activate in every phase, plus some. Yeah. But uh, it was either that or the durability. And so uh, depending on the meta, uh, one of those is better than the other. And so that's just kind of what I tech forwards. Yeah. Um, and then we have a quick question from chat about yeah, your game against Sean Aiden at the end there. Um, uh, so we, uh, Kara Quinn, so what's your game versus Sean? Disclaimer, teammate. So it's probably like a horrible biased opinion here. Um, what happened at the end from your viewpoint? Because apparently it was really close and then it wasn't. That's interesting, because from my perspective, it was actually quite the opposite. Um, <laughs> because I actually scored a lot more of my points later on in the game when I took one flank. Because it was a Dawn of War deployment on the long side of the table. And I underestimated the output that his army was going to have. Uh, I looked at the durability of my army, and I'm like, you know, he's teching much into the same thing that I am, which is taking care of a lot of low toughness, low save models. And so yeah. I thought maybe against my army it wouldn't work as well. So you saw a really early push in the first couple turns. And then you saw me kind of realize, oh, man, he has the tools to take down these early pushes. So I need to bring the area of influence that my army has and shrink it down. And the way I did that was taking one of the triangles off to the side of the board. By doing so, I had a much smaller area that my army was able to respond throughout. And I got a lot more points by doing so. My primary started going up. I purged the vermin started going up. Uh, everything started increasing uh, once I did that and actually got a lot more points later on. Um, so I feel that if I had uh, realized that a little bit earlier on, it might have been a little bit closer because uh, it really started off with him definitely on the upper hand. And it's just, he's such a good player. Like, it's crazy the things that he does. Like, he targeted my Immortals first. And when you look at my army, you think, man, the Immortals are the least scary part of that list. But he saw it as, if I kill the Immortals, he doesn't have a lot of ways to respond to flanks because my individual models are pretty slow. Yeah. So without ranged output, if he puts Harlequins over here, I can't get over there as quickly. So it was really smart to take out the threats that weren't so much more dangerous, but more important to the counter strategy that he was employing. Yeah, absolutely. And we tend to learn more from defeat than we do for victory. Um, what's something you took away from that game against Sean that you're like, oh, man, I'm going to add that to the tool set or I'm not going to be fooled by that again? Uh, one of the things that I took away from that game, uh, first of all, was watch out for Sean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. But uh, second of all, it was this idea where I, I pre-measure and re-measure things all the time. I'm constantly around the table saying, okay, how far away is this thing? How far away is that thing? And kind of thinking, okay, how many movements would it take to get this unit over here? But I was always doing it in uh, accordance with my opponent, measuring out, okay, where's the uh, the angles by which my obscuring is activating and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I've, I started learning towards the end of that game to say, okay, I need to start measuring distances between my own units not even the characters but like these other units to say okay what is my response time because that's what he really beat me down on is my response time i couldn't respond to what he was doing fast enough 
And so that was definitely something that kind of logged away in the back of my mind and just said, okay, that's something I need to pay attention to in the future and to make sure that all my units can respond to someone around them. Like make sure everybody's helping out. Nobody's alone. Yeah. And it definitely seemed to help out there too. And is a really great thing to take in the future, uh, especially when you're like, you're going for craft world and you're going for, no, you're ah, you're not even going for craft world. What am I saying? You're going for a mechanicus and Dracarian, like metalists like that. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Eldarian Har- Harlequins. This is new and unique. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's also like, I, I can't stress enough, guys. Um, you, you learn way more from losing. That's why I have learned so much in Warhammer in the last year and a half. Thanks to Danny kicking me in the rear quite, quite a lot. Um, so we're done with LSO now. You're, you're kind of moving on to Pastures New. You're, you're returning the Necrons back to the tomb. Am I right? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Like I mentioned before, I have been playing Orcs for a decade longer than I've been playing Necrons. And uh, it was always a plan to switch over to Orcs. Uh, with Necrons kind of slowing down on the tournament scene, it's a lot more comfortable. I don't have to defend my standing as much. And uh, I'm actually taking an Orc list to a major. It's the uh, War Games for Warriors. It's actually another charity event that's happening over here in Utah. Um, so I'll be taking those there this Saturday, uh, seeing how my Orcs can play out. I think there's still some play that can be done with Necrons. I'll probably bring them to a couple more RTTs. But... Uh, yeah, for now, they're just kind of taking the back seat as I explore new horizons with the wall. So you got the, you obviously got a hold of the Beast Naga box uh, by Hooker Crook, uh, and you have sort of an idea of how that's going. Uh, where's the Excel sp- spreadsheet at for the orcs? Uh, what are we seeing is like something you're like, okay, that is super cool. Because we see a lot of people talking about like the deck jets and like the, the war bikers having 10 shot seats and all the, the cool little obvious giant things. What are some cool things you're noticing from that book? So the cool things that I'm noticing from that book is the amount of quick strike that you can have, which is kind of just something that I have in my head where basically you can say any unit can activate at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big things that people are sad about is that storm boys can no longer be taken in squads of 30 people online. were saying, Oh man, I can only take 45 storm boys, half my storm boys. I can't legally play anymore. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's really interesting. Why would they do that? And I think it's because storm boys are really good. And the playtesters said, maybe 90s a bit much because they're, they're just so amazing. They got the extra toughness. They got the extra AP on their weapons. Uh, they don't all explode when they fly anymore. There's only a 50-50 chance that one explodes. Uh, they can respond basically anywhere on the table with their auto advance. And they just blend. So they just blend. It's insane. And then they dropped a point, unlike every everything else. People were like, oh, man, yeah, everybody got an extra toughness, but they went up in points. Storm Boys, they dropped in points. And so I'm building all these lists and looking around, and uh, that's kind of like the the positive uh, take that I have. On the flip side, I kind of have a, a hot negative take. Oh boy, I, throw it throw it at me! I do not think squig buggies are as good as people think they are. Oh, oh the gonna... the rocket truck squig wagon, right? Did I yeah, get that right? Think... The rocket truck squig buggies, yeah. I think they're really exciting right now because they're one of the most improved. But, you know, most improved doesn't always mean the best. And <laughs> just pumping it out, like the math on it, is just kind of pitiful. Um, if you're running about four rocket truck squig buggies and you're shooting at another orc army, which is probably going to be a common matchup, you're only going to be killing about max six models if your opponent's smart. 
And it's just not really worth the return, especially if the game is who has more assets to play with on the midboard. Sure. So I don't know. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but that's my first initial hot take is that I'm watching all these games at Charity Hammer. I'm like, I don't think these squig buggies are doing as much as people want them to. They did seem to be like the new hotness out of the gate, uh, but you heard him uh, like Storm Boys. And thankfully, because they cut that unit size down in half, they're hopefully be going not for ridiculous amounts of money on eBay uh, because people are now going to have seriously an amount of orcs that they're not allowed to take anymore. Um, Marshall, what is, where can people find you? What do you do? What do you want to promote? All right. Well, uh, probably the easiest place to find me is holyterragaming.com. I actually run a painting studio. We've done work for Tabletop Titans. Uh, we have quite the queue coming out, but we have more painters coming in to compensate for it. So feel free to join us over there. Um, uh, We've got a lot of competitive prices. We're based around the idea that people want entire armies painted. So if you don't want to pay 20 bucks per model, we're a good spot for you. Absolutely. They will charge you 40. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and then what, and so your, your main thing is through that. Uh, you can catch me in his RTTs and then the GTs coming up. Any majors coming up for you travel wise? Yeah, I for now I know that I'm going to the War Games for Warriors. I'm going to be over at Southern California Open. I'm going to be at the Las Vegas Open. Uh, yeah, lots of uh, all those tournaments. I'm going to be there. Uh, so yeah, you should be seeing me around as long as I don't tank with the orcs. Well, then you will be seeing me around. Absolutely, uh, Marshall. Thank you so much. Uh, for Grim After Dark, we're going to wrap it up for this week here. Next week, we're going to have on Tim Penny of the Florida Man podcast, and we are going to talk about the GW Open that is this weekend, uh, the the famed plexiglass terrain and how that worked out and his experience there at the event. Uh, you can definitely check that this weekend on stream. Uh, GW Open coming out of, of Florida. It's going to be, uh, I think, a really good event. Uh, no new works, but that's okay. Uh, but yeah. For so for Grim After Dark, um, I've been John. My co-host, as always, has been Danny Marshall. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>